Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our uh, evening service. Hope you've had a good day so far, and you're looking forward to our time together this evening. Verse 22 of Psalm 44 says, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, that verse is a bit of a motto for the the persecuted church, uh, Christians living in countries where they face death for the sake of Christ. Last week was the launch of this year's uh, Open Doors World Watch List, uh, top 50, uh, the top 50 countries in the world where Christians are most persecuted. Well, let's bring our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ uh, to the Lord now in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, as we watch that video, it makes us feel uncomfortable in many ways because we are aware that in comparison our lives are so easy and comfortable. And we do thank you for our many daily blessings, for safety, security, for an efficient health service, an education system that is free for all. But as Christians, we have freedom of worship and speech and for all our many material comforts. And all we are sorry where we've been ungrateful for all we have, or where we've not given you the thanks and somehow thought we deserved all we have. We're sorry where we have loved our our blessings more than you as a source of those blessings. We're sorry when we've not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Forgive us, we pray. And thank you that we can be reassured of our forgiveness through the death of your son, for our sakes. Father, help us to live lives of purity and faithfulness and to surrender all to you. Help us to be good stewards of the resources with which you have blessed us. We bring you our financial offerings and pray that you would give us wisdom in the way they are used. We pray that they would result in the growth of your church here and overseas. Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in all of those countries we saw on the video who face death for your sake every day. We pray that they would know your love so powerfully that it would cast out all fear and worry. We pray that they would trust in your power so deeply that they would have the courage they need to stand firm and the eternal hope to rejoice in their sufferings as they are united to Christ. We pray that they would know that they are not alone, that Christians throughout the world are praying for them and standing up for them. We pray that you would encourage them through answers to prayer as you change the hearts of their persecutors. Father, we pray also this evening for Pastor Julian in Romania, Lydia, Yulia and Kathleen and the church in Kalarash. Pray for that new sermon series that Yulia will be doing on the sense, scope and significance of the Christian life. May you use him to build up that church there in unity and maturity and bring others to faith. And we pray for Saab as he opens up your words for shortly that you would enable him to speak clearly and faithfully, 
and your spirit would fill us with your comfort and your reassurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Got a Bible? Please do turn to Psalm 44 and we'll be reading the whole psalm together. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trampled our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold our people for a pittance, gaining nothing for their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. And help us. 
Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Amen. Nathan, thank you for bringing us that reading. Uh, Before we start, let's uh, pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the treasure it contains, the food our souls need. Uh, Father, please be at work by your spirit this evening. Uh, Help me to speak your words clearly and give us all hearts that are teachable, eager to sit under your word and your instruction. Hearts and lives that seek to grow in love and knowledge of you, that we might live our lives to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help for me if you're able to follow along. Uh, We're continuing our series looking at the Psalms of Lament this evening, and we are in Psalm 44. Uh, The Psalter is... uh, A book of prayers, the the book of Psalms is a book of prayers, and it provides us with the words that we need to frame uh, our prayers. Uh, And the Bible is not in the least bit simplistic, it's not naive, it's not Pollyannish. It recognizes that when we pray, we might not always be in a happy place. The sun will not always be shining on our backs, and the road will not always be rising up to meet us. At times we may find ourselves in a season where everything, everything is going against us. And in those times, we don't need to be told to grin and to bear it. We need two things. Uh, Firstly, we need to know that what we are experiencing is not because God has abandoned us. And secondly, we need some words that really allow us, equip us to articulate How we really feel to God. How we really feel. And we need to know that it's okay to lament. And we need to know how to do it. But it's a sad truth, isn't it, that as Christians we tend uh, not to look at lament. uh, Even though a huge number of psalms are psalms of lament. Now you can't read what's on this, which is important that you can't read it. Um, It's... A graphic representation of 150 psalms. Uh, The smaller the circle, the smaller the psalm. The bigger the circle, the longer the psalm. And they're clustered together in different groups. Uh, You've got royal psalms, you've got uh, hymns, thanksgiving and so on. But in the top right-hand corner, that quadrant, they're psalms of lament. More than a third of the Psalter is psalms of lament. As a category, it's the largest single category of psalms yeah god wants us to have lament as a core part of our prayers the theologian dr allender uh, speaking about lament he writes this christians seldom sing in the minor key we fear the somber we seem to hold sorrow in low esteem Uh, We seem predisposed to fear lament as a quick slide into doubt and despair, failing to see that doubt and despair are the dark soil that is necessary to grow confidence and joy. To sing a lament against God in worship reveals far, far greater trust than to sing a jingle about how happy we are and how much we trust him. Lament cuts through insincerity, strips pretense, and reveals the raw nerve of trust 
that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed and robust wonder. He's right. Biblical lament does not lead to despair, but ultimately to confidence in God. So with that in mind, let's turn to Psalm 44. This is my last slide, so you will need your Bibles from this point forward. Uh, we're going to see four things. We're going to see um, evidence of the past, verses 1 through 8. Uh, the psalmist's present, verses 9 through 16. The psalmist's pain, 17 through 26. And there's a promise tucked away in there in verse 22. So, past, present, pain, promise. The past. Uh, the psalmist opens the psalm by remembering the way that God has been with the people of Israel. In verse 1, he tells us that his ancestors had told him all the things that God had done in their days. He's remembering the things that were done in the days of old. Uh, take a look with me at verse 1. Uh, we have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. Uh, the accounts of the things that God has done has been passed down to the psalmist by his ancestors. As parents taught their children of the things that God had done for them. And the children would then pass that on to their children and so on. What God had done was something that was spoken about, told, learnt and remembered and then passed on. And what was the psalmist told? What was he passed on? What was he asked to pass on? We see that in verse 2. Take a look. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. And the psalmist is referring to the way that God kept his promise of delivering the people to the land that God had appointed for them. Uh, the land was occupied by other nations and we read of the way that God readied the land for his people, going with his people into battle and they would succeed. When God was in battle with them, nothing, nothing could stop the armies of Israel. Starting with the routing of Jericho, with what seemed like an, imp an, an impenetrable fortress brought low by trumpets. And the history of the people of Israel is marked by the way that God went ahead of the people and pushed back any army that God's people met. And the psalmist remembers this. Take a look in verse 3 with me. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. Uh, for sure, the armies of Israel did go into battle. It wasn't that they sat down on the side and just watched God at work, routing the people of, uh, of the foreign lands. No, the people of Israel fought. They were well armed and they were brave, but... The psalmist recognizes that it wasn't the sweat of their brow that made the difference. It wasn't the weapons that they used that made the difference. No, it wasn't even their physical strength. It was because God was with them. And the psalmist declares this to be the case in verses 5 through 7. Take a look. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trampled our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies and you put our adversaries to shame. And they knew this because the people also remembered the times when God wasn't 
with his people in battle. Uh, When they had sinned or had been disobedient, in those battles, the armies of Israel suffered terrible defeat. They were completely humiliated, even when they outnumbered the enemy. So the psalmist dwells on what has been seen in history. He sees that God will go out with his faithful people. And because of that, he states something incredibly boldly in verse 8. He states that they are going to trust in one thing. The thing that they are going to base their strongest declarations on, the thing that they will boast in, is God. Based on what the nation has been told about the mighty acts of God, they are going to stand firm and trust in God. They will. And the psalmist says that they are going to stand firm on that truth forever. He firmly believed if the people of Israel were faithful to God, that no trial, no trial would befall them. If they trusted in God, then no army could come against them. If they trusted in God, the enemy's spear would not pierce them. As the psalmist dwells on the past, he drew a straight line between the faithfulness to God equaling God's protection of his people in the battles that they waged. The psalmist looks at the past and draws a straight line from that to what he hopes to see God doing now. And that brings us to our second point, the present. Uh, The first eight verses do make for very comfortable reading, don't they? Very comfortable reading. They speak of all the wonderful things that God has done. And the words are laced with gentle humility aren't they how wonderful you are god we could do nothing without you you bring us victory it's not my sword it's your mighty arm and as we remember and pray it can feel like that's the sort of prayer that we should say but as the psalmist now dwells on where the people of israel are where the people of god are in the current moment the tone of the psalm turns Uh, We're sadly not told exactly what event sparked the writing of the psalm. It's thought that the psalm was written at a time when the people of Israel had suffered a major military defeat. When they had prepared themselves faithfully before God, listened to him and then gone into battle and there had suffered a dramatic defeat. The people of Israel faced an existential crisis. They were looking down the barrel of being completely overrun. And in the light of that, as they dwell on what their ancestors have told them about the living God driving away the enemies, the psalmist is utterly bewildered. And they tell God about what God has done. And they come to God with a a rawness, uh, with an intensity of pain. Uh, The psalmist doesn't just lash out. He reflects on what God has said about himself and he uses that as the basis to present his lament. And what the psalmist writes is eye-wateringly bold. Uh, One of the theologians commenting on this section of the psalm says that in these verses, uh, one finds such irreverent sarcasm, which is without parallel in all of the psalms. And the words in the psalm are so offensive, for times, uh, this psalm would not be read in synagogues. It was thought of as just too irreverent. The psalmist takes the amazing things about God that his ancestors have told him and then seemingly utter contempt. He 
writes those things down on the page that we were going to read and he just throws them back at God's face. The disaster that's befallen the the nation of Israel, the psalmist says, it's all your fault, God. It's all your fault. In verse 9, the psalmist looks back at what his ancestors said in verse 8. Remember in verse 8, his ancestors had boasted in God and praised his name. Take a look now at what he writes in verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our enemies. He's saying to God that he has deliberately, God has deliberately chosen to reject, humble and abandon his people. The psalmist says that we're out there telling the whole world how great you are, how wonderful you are, how you're a saving and living God. We're out there for you and you, God, are nowhere to be seen. You've just checked out. In verses 5 through 7, the psalmist remembers that his ancestors said that through God, uh, the people pushed back the enemies. That the nation pushed back the enemies because God was with them. Take a look at what he says in verse 10. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. With God, the victory was won. No enemy could withstand it. The enemy simply retreated. Now God was nowhere to be found. God's people are being pushed back. God's people are being plundered. Soon they fear they are going to be completely overrun. They're facing a crisis, and it's God's fault, says the psalmist. God made them retreat in verse 4 they remember that God is their king and God he is the one who cares for them he is the king that cherishes his people a king is there to project covering love and protection for his people but in verse 11 and 12 the psalmist has some harsh words to speak to God you gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations you sold your people for a pittance gaining nothing from their sale. The psalmist says the people are like sheep and without a shepherd to care for them, they are not going to last one minute in the wild. What sort of king would do that to his people? What sort of king could be so distracted, so uninterested, so uncaring that he would let his people be devoured like sheep, says the psalmist? What sort of king would let down his own kingdom in that way just to allow them to fade away as his people are scattered to the far corners of the earth? The psalmist is saying, how hard must God's heart be? How selfish, how self-indulgent a king must he be? How weak and pathetic must such a king be that he would even countenance such a thing? And if that's not enough, the psalmist then says that it feels like the people have been sold and sold for a pittance. How could the ancestors of old tell the psalmist about a God who set his love on his people, a God who called them into a living relationship with them, who would then allow them to be treated in this way, to be treated as worthless? Uh, When I worked in the city, my business partner at the end of the day would turn out his pockets Look at all the coins he had in his pocket. Anything that was copper, just toss it into the bin. Throw it away. Just throw it into the bin. And the psalmist here is saying, wow, God, that's how we feel. We feel you're treating us the same way. You're just tossing us into the bin because you've looked in your pocket and you no longer consider us to be of any value. 
And then he says that it's as though God is so dim-witted that he took the people to be sold and wasn't bright enough to get a good price for them. He went to the market and forgot to ask for a fair value. God has been outwitted by the people in the market and managed to secure nothing from the sale of the people. And in verse 2, the psalmist had remembered that God had allowed his people to flourish. Now he's made them a foul stench in the presence of the nations. The nations derided them and mocked them. God's abandonment of his people in battle left his people disgraced, shamed, scorned, taunted, mocked, reviled, and endangered. God, the psalmist says, perhaps you aren't as powerful as our ancestors told us. Perhaps you're weaker than the gods of the nations around us. Do you feel the weight of the pain and the anger and the frustration that the psalmist takes to God? You understand why this psalm was not read in synagogues for such a long period of time. My eldest daughter uh, has just moved uh, jobs. Uh, she works for, uh, for a new small go-getting company that has a culture of telling people when things are good and telling people when things aren't good. Uh, they'll tell her quickly when she is doing well and they'll tell her quickly and robustly when things aren't going well. She says it's a culture of radical candor, telling it how it is quickly and robustly. And that's what the psalmist has done here. Radical candor. But why? Why is God no longer going out in battle with his people? And that brings us to our third point, the pain. In verses 17 through 22, the reason for the pain of the nation that Israel experiences is laid out in the complaint, the lament. Uh, Take a look with me. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The psalmist tells God they've done nothing wrong. In verse 17 he says they've not forgotten God or been false to the covenant. In verse 18 he says their hearts have not turned back. They've not strayed from the path. And in verse 20, he says they've neither forgotten God, nor have they turned to other gods. And we have to assume this is true, um, that the people had indeed been faithful to God. Uh, In other places in the Psalter, uh, we do read where the psalmist comes before God with confessions of sin, seeking forgiveness. But here the psalmist says, no, we've been faithful. We've been obedient. The people have been prayerful. They've made their sacrifices. They've attended the festival days. They've been holy. They've been faithful to God. They've done everything that God had called them to do. And when they went out to battle, they were trampled underfoot. When they most needed God, he was absent. And the question that's beneath this complaint is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? If the psalmist had been obedient, indeed, if we have been obedient, is God not under an obligation to be faithful to the psalmist in battle or to deliver us from our trials? Why do bad things happen to good people? 
Uh, In the 1950s, uh, five Christian men uh, discerned God's call on their hearts and, uh, and on their lives to go and preach the gospel to a small, remote tribe in Ecuador. Uh, These godly, prayerful, faithful, and obedient men, Mr. Saint, Uderan, McCulley, Fleming, and Jim Elliott, uh, followed the Lord's calling. Uh, From their base in Ecuador, uh, they planned to reach the remote group of tribesmen called the Huarani. So to prepare... Uh, They made a few passes in their plane, dropping baskets containing gifts so that the Hurani would know uh, that they were not a threat at all, that they they meant well. They landed their plane on the river and they approached the tribe uh, to start to share uh, the good news of the Lord Jesus. And on that morning, as the five missionaries went out, uh, they were met by ten of the Hurani warriors. The warriors simply killed the five men. The words of Psalm 44:22 ring loud in our ears when we hear that account. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why do good things, bad things happen to good people? Uh, today around the world, as we saw on the videotape, uh, 360 million Christians suffer persecution and discrimination. Last year, 6,000 6, Christians were murdered for their faith. There are places all over the world, as we saw on the tape, where faithful, godly, prayerful, obedient churches are being considered as sheep for slaughter. Why do bad things happen to good people? At the moment, the church in the UK doesn't face the same level of hostility and opposition. Uh, But a time may come in the not-too-dead future when we may go out in a spiritual battle to find God's protection not with us. Times perhaps uh, when we proclaim Christ as the only way to the Father, when we teach biblical truths about marriage, about sex, about gender. Uh, That may result in your pastors being arrested and incarcerated. And that will put you in the spotlight, you the congregation, when being a faithful, godly, prayerful and obedient church may mean that you are being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You may ask yourself perhaps today for other reasons. Why do bad things happen to good people? Psalm 44 speaks about the problem of God, that God is not a person that we control, that bad things happen to good people we can't strong arm God into doing the things that we want him to do in the here and now simply by doing the things that we think he calls us to do God is beyond our understanding and so the psalmist doesn't seek to resolve the tension he leaves the question hanging the psalmist doesn't try to elaborate further on the problem or even try to point to a resolution instead the psalmist closes the lament with prayer. He says this in verses 24 to 26. Take a look with me. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. 
Uh, rationally, it might seem a bit odd for the psalmist to pray, to trust the God that he has complained about being absent. But the prayer recognizes the mystery of God, which makes prayer not only worthwhile, but life-giving. But there is a problem. There is a problem. We know that we can't own the words of verses 17 through 21 for ourselves. Just take a look at those verses again for a moment. I'm not going to read them, just take a quick look. I know that I am not innocent. I know that I have not loved God with all my heart, mind, soul and strength. And my neighbour, well, I'm lukewarm towards my neighbour. My feet stray from God's path. My heart is still being caught by the joys and the toys of the world. The idols that the world worships continue to bleed into my own heart. And if each one of us was honest for a moment, uh, we would, I think, conclude that this is true also in a larger or smaller degree for us. So as a body of believers, we can't claim the innocence that the psalmist does. So where's the hope for us? The hope... I wonder if you spotted it. It's found in verse 22. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In what look like words of despair, we find real hope. And that brings us to our final point, the promise. In the first eight verses, the psalmist has been remembering the way that God had behaved towards his people. The actions of God in the past for his people, the things that God had done that proved that he loved and he treasured his people. Uh, The way that God had behaved towards his people was like the way a father, a loving father, cares for his son. A father who protects, provides for and lifts up his son in delight and rejoicing. Like a father who would never leave or abandon his son. And if we go back into Exodus chapter 4, we find God telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh as he goes to plead for his people's release. And God describes the people of Israel, the people of Israel, as his son. Now, as that son journeyed with God from Egypt, that son proved himself to be errant, hard-hearted and rebellious. That son was a people that were false with the covenant. That son rejected God and turned away to graven images and the gods that were worshipped by the nations around. And so to rescue his people, to rescue us, you and me, God sent his only begotten son. And this true son lived the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we deserve in our place. He held fast to the covenant. When tempted by the devil, his feet didn't stray from the path. But as the one true son went out to rescue us, he faced death. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This one true son came to rescue us, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. This true son went out to rescue us and his father didn't go with him. When the mob came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father's right hand did not cause the mob to retreat. This true son 
was sold for a pittance. 30 pieces of silver for the one true son of God. The mob reviled and jeered the one true son. Instead of receiving the blessings of the covenant which he deserved, he got the curse. He was hanged on a tree. And the judgment against the sin of the world, your sin and mine, fell on him on that cross. He was crushed in the dirt and covered over in darkness. He was one who was truly good. And the worst of all things happened to him. Bad things happen to good people. But that's not because God is absent, unloving, unkind, weak or uninterested. In the plan of God, there is something powerful in the witness of the good being crushed. There is, in a peculiar way, a conquest which is achieved through the darkness coming upon the good. Uh, Through the darkness of the death of Christ, the one true son dying so that we might be adopted as God's children. The darkness was not the end. Uh, It wasn't obvious to the disciples as they wept in the darkness at the foot of the cross, but it was God working out his ultimate victory. The darkness was not the end. Uh, In some way, as good people experience the darkness uh, that we are participating in uh, currently, we are actually working out and participating in the conquest that Christ has won. In some way, we stand together in Christ Experiencing the darkness, the bad things, because it's through that darkness, through that pain, through that trial, that God is revealing his conquest to the world. The darkness was not the end. Uh, I mentioned the uh, the brutal murder of uh, Jim Elliott and his four friends on that riverbank, uh, even before their mission trip managed to get going. A darkness crushed those men. Yet through the witness of those men, Jim Elliot's wife and other women managed to reach the same tribe. And many of those people who had been responsible for the murder of Jim and his friends received Christ as their saviour. They responded to the gospel. Through the darkness, God has conquered. The darkness was not the end. And that's why Psalm 44 verse 22 is the promise of hope for us. Because it was Christ who was really led away like a lamb to be slaughtered. So that ultimately we who believe and trust in Jesus would be spared that judgment. The psalmist finishes with a prayer in which he states that he trusts that God will deliver him. And Paul uses this verse from Psalm 44 to remind us of the hope that we have as Christians. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. The hope that we have is the truth that we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That the darkness is not the end. And that in all things, in times of crushing darkness or in brilliant light, we are conquerors in Christ. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul in Romans 8:35 through 39 as he reflects on the promise of Psalm 44:22 in one of the loftiest bits of scripture he writes this who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written he says quoting Psalm 44 verse 22 For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah to that. So what can we do? Let me just briefly suggest three things. Tell, look, and pray. Tell. Be a people, of verse one of this psalm, of people that tell our children or our grandchildren of the mighty things that God has done. Read, tell, and explain the biblical accounts of what God has done. Buy them an accessible Bible, one with pictures in Make use of the fabulous resources that Nathan and his team have put together. Secondly, look. Look at the times that God has done amazing things in your life. Let those times shine brightly as you look back. Uh, Perhaps start a journal. Uh, Keep a diary of those times when the goodness of God has broken into your life. Let those times be the light you need in the darkness. Know that darkness is not the end. Thirdly, gather together as a church family in prayer. Bring your laments to God. Do that as you remember the promises that God has made. Remember the promises that God has made. And then cry out your pain through those promises. God knows you better than you know yourself. So pray honestly and openly. Pray with boldness. Let me pray. Now the psalmist writes this. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Father, help us in times of trial. When we suffer at times when we are faithfully serving you. We pray that you would again make your face to shine upon us. Might we know you raising us up in your arms. We pray not necessarily for a change in our circumstances, but we pray for an outpouring of your grace into our hearts that we might have the strength to hold fast to you in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope tonight's been a great encouragement to you, wherever you may be at the moment, whether you are in the darkness or in the light, so you may know that Christ is your hope in life and death. If you'd like to pray with somebody, if there are struggles you're going through, do please grab Saab or Colin or myself afterwards. We'd be loving to, to pray with you, pray through some of those struggles. And let me close with those um, words again from uh, the end of Romans 8. Wonderful words of encouragement. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution 
or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As this is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.